0: Okay. Well, happy to be here, and traffic was okay today. Not bad. So this is my webpage. I have websites, and this is my personal web page. And you can find out all about me there, and you can see a picture of a cat too. So um, I'm going to talk about Buddhism, and in the 21st century, I think Buddhism is going to be even more important in the 21st century than it might be right now. But you haven't really studied Buddhism yet, so let me just share a little bit about that to bring you up to speed on, on why Buddhists are in the world and, and what they do. So 2,600 years ago, there was this guy named Siddhartha Gotama, and he became a Buddha. Now, anybody can become a Buddha as long as you wake up. The hard part's waking up. So the word Buddha means one who is awake, one who is awake, and you can—it can be a female, it can be a male—and uh, you don't even have to know anything about Buddhism. You can have—you can just all of a sudden wake up to the true nature of reality. So that's what we talk about a lot. What is the true nature of reality? Uh, because what you're experiencing right now is not it. What you're experiencing right now, according to. Um, Alan Watts is a massive hallucination. Yeah, you're all hallucinating right now. And you imagine you're in a room, and you have people, and you have their names, and you can see them, and they're wearing clothes and shoes, and all that stuff is not the case. But I don't want to make you see it any other way, because this is a relative reality, and this is what we need To be able to experience the world in a human way and have partners and have jobs and go to school and drive cars, all necessary to have a relative perspective. Okay, But the ultimate perspective would be sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thinking. The six sense doors of Buddhism is our direct portal, doorway into the world. And then what happens is something remarkable that only humans can do. Somehow, in our evolution as a human being, we got an ego. And this ego is our friend because it is who we think we are. And it takes all the information from those six sense doors and makes the story of our life. Okay? Isn't that cool? And we don't even have to work very hard at it. It just does it automatically. But the problem with that is it's made up. It's mind made. It's not real. And what do we do? We suffer because we want the world to be better than it is. We want our life to be better than it is. We expect certain things to happen and they don't. And it's very uncomfortable sometimes to be a human being because we get so disappointed with our daily life, our weekly life, our monthly life, our life in general. So the Buddha said, our problem is that we are going to suffer as a human being. That was the first truth he became aware of. We are going to suffer as a human being. But it's not really big suffering most of the time. It's just little suffering most of the time. You know, the car won't start, late for class, forgot a pen, all the stuff that just sort of makes it a little more difficult To have a good day. Okay. So we suffer. Now, the interesting thing for me is that none of us can see the actual suffering. We see the reasons for our suffering. We see the results. We see the consequence of those reasons for our suffering. But suffering itself doesn't have a color, doesn't have a form... Doesn't have a smell, doesn't have a sound, because it is internal. Our suffering is internal. Okay? Now, the Buddha said, I have discovered why we suffer as human beings. He said, We suffer because we have desire, we have craving, we have attachment, we have aversion. That even if we get what we want, it only satisfies that desire for a short period of time. Then we want something else. So they just came out with the new iPhone. Three cameras. Amazing. But Samsung has one with four cameras. So which one are you going to get? And they're probably going to come out with five cameras just around the corner, to always get us to have that desire and craving and attachment for the newest and latest product. Okay. So, we suffer because we have desire and craving, attachment and aversion. Now, the Buddha didn't stop there. So, it's not, it's not pessimistic. It's realistic. And then the Buddha said, I have found the answer to suffering. We are the only religion in the world that says we have the answer to suffering. Only one. How about Catholicism? Does it have the answer to suffering? I don't think so. You know, I look at God's only son on the cross and I'm going, looks like suffering to me, you know. But he says that in your afterlife, you can have perfection in heaven. Cool. But in this life, you're going to find a bumpy road. And you can be stoic, and there's grace, and there's understanding, but there's no end to suffering. So we have our little niche. We have our little place in the world's religions, and we don't talk about God. We don't go there. Why don't we go there? Number one, the Buddha never met a Jew. Okay? So the the only people in the world at the time of the Buddha who believed in the one God and turns out to be the one God of the desert were the Jews, and the Buddha never went any further than 300 miles away from his birthplace. So he knew Hindus. And how many gods do Hindus have? Man, they have a lot of gods, they have a hierarchy. You've got the top God, and then you've got the little gods below that, and then each village has a God, each home has a God, each person has, and this is like thousands of gods. So we don't even go to the God question. But we don't blame God for our suffering either. We don't curse him and say, why do you make me suffer, God? You know, I'm a good person. We don't go there. Because we don't feel that God creates suffering for humans. What we feel is that our mind creates suffering for humans. And what we need to do is not change the world, but change the way we experience the world. Now, think about that. Isn't that a trap? We don't want to change the world. The world is just the way it is. And everything in the world, ultimately, is going to be unsatisfactory. Because it's going to end. Everything in the world ends. So we say, okay, if it ends, it had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, there's going to be suffering between the beginning and the end. Okay, there you go. So, so we like to think of the idea of God <clears throat> as being necessary to give <clears throat> the answer to why we're here. And what we do while we're here. But that's where it ends. So what is the end of suffering? What is the end of suffering that the Buddha rediscovered? Nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. And I use the word rediscovered because according to some forms of Buddhism, there were 27 Buddhas on earth before Siddhartha Gotama. So Siddhartha Gotama is the 28th Buddha. And we already know who the 29th Buddha is going to be. That's going to be Maitreya Buddha. And he is up in heaven, and he's waiting for the last person who knows the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, to die. And then he'll be reborn on earth and start the wheel of Dharma turning again. Isn't that cool? What a great story that is. Now, is it true? Well, you know, we don't know. We don't know if it's true, but we do know it's a good story and it gives meaning to our experience and what we're trying to do is change the way we experience the world. Okay, nirvana. Let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of what nirvana is. Nirvana, number one, is the end of suffering while you're alive. So once you achieve nirvana, you never have to suffer again. How cool is that? Nirvana is also the end of karma. So you will never create anything that will cause you to suffer again. And number three, nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. You'll never be reborn again. Now, this is America. This is Torrance. It's 2019 reincarnation, rebirth? You know, it sounds like such an ancient way of looking at the world. Is it really? And and is there a difference between rebirth in Buddhism and reincarnation in Hinduism? And there is. There's such a big difference. Number one, in rebirth, the soul does not go lifetime to lifetime. The Buddha said we may not even have a soul. Doesn't that freak you out? Mm -hmm. Haven't you always thought you had a soul? It's nice to have a soul. We don't know where it lives. Somebody said it's behind the pituitary gland. But, you know, when the x-ray machine was invented, they x-rayed people to find the soul. Gave them radiation poisoning, and they didn't find the soul. You know So what is a soul? What is a soul? They tried to weigh the soul to find out how much it weighs. So they would weigh a person before they died, and they'd weigh a person after they died, and the difference in the weight would be how much a soul weighed. But you know what? That doesn't work either because the body, when it dies, sort of relieves itself and gets rid of fluids and stuff, and and that would account for the difference in weight. So the Buddha said, you may have a soul, We haven't found it yet, but that's not who you really are. That's not the real you. That's not your eternal identity. And then people say, well, what is the real me or you? And that's the big question. That's what Buddhists work on a lot. Who am I? Who am I? Where do I stand? Huh? Where do I stand? Now, in this rebirth thing, we feel that what transferred migrates lifetime to lifetime is not the soul, but the karmic energy that you create in a life. So what is karma? Karma is everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. What karma does, karma takes your thoughts, speech, and action, and that, that transforms energy and gives it a moral value. So we feel that the world is filled with energy. And a lot of the great scientists say, yeah, it's all out there. But you can't create energy, you can't destroy energy, you can only transform energy. So as a Buddhist, we feel that our mind, our mouth, and our body are transforming energy all the time and giving it a value, either skillful, unskillful, good, bad. So sometimes if you're speaking and you don't think before you speak and you say something that's really unkind to somebody, what you're creating in the world is some negative energy, some unskillful energy. Now that energy then has a consequence. So in Buddhism, it's a two-part thing. We have karma that creates and transforms the energy, and then we have vipaka, and that's the consequence of that transformation of energy. So karma transforms the energy. Vipaka is the consequence of that transformed energy. And so if you say something unskillful, and then somebody hits you, then you have the cause and the consequence. And we would say that's karma. And vipaka, cause and consequence. So this karma that we transform our whole life by thinking, speaking, and acting doesn't go away. It follows us into the next lifetime. Okay? So now the next lifetime starts. And say you are born in Polis Verdes. Mm-hmm. Hey, cool. Good karma, man. That's only the start, though, because now it's up to you, the rest of your life, to keep it really good. What happens if you're born in South Central? Well, maybe not so good karma. But it doesn't mean you have to stay there. You can always transform that karma, always transform the way you experience the world, by having skillful intentions, skillful speech, and skillful action. Okay, so far so good. Now we have something called the Eightfold Path. This is our template. This is our map. This is what we use to practice Buddhism. So I call Buddhism a practice religion. We're always practicing it. And then one day it turns into performance. And that performance is called nirvana. That's when your practice finally pays off. And if you play guitar or piano or banjo there's a whole lot of practice involved in able to play it well and to turn it into performance. So Buddhists are always practicing. We sit for long periods of time. We watch what we say. We watch what we do. We watch how we think. And we try to transform the unskillful into skillful. So you may wonder what skillful is. Skillful is... Generosity, kindness, and wisdom. Generosity, kindness, and wisdom. Unskillful is hatred, delusion, anger, and greed. So we have greed, hatred, and anger, delusion, we have generosity, kindness, and wisdom. So we have skillful and unskillful. So how do you figure it out? How do you look at it and say, okay, this is really unskillful. I shouldn't be doing this. Now, I just had an incident a couple of weeks ago that I take care of nine homeless cats, and somehow they found us at the meditation center, and so they live with us now. And they're, they're fat and fluffy, and it's nice to have them there. But it requires a lot of cat food, and i got to feed them twice a day. So I go to Food for Less, because they usually have cheaper prices on their cat food. So the other week, I was in Food for Less, and I'm going to the cat food aisle, but I accidentally went down to Bakery aisle, And there, before my eyes, was a box of Hostess cupcakes, 10, individually wrapped, for less than $3. And I said, well, I'm getting two of these. And then I went to the cat food aisle, and I got all the cat food, a couple cases of cat food. So I'm going up to the clerk now, and I got my hostess cupcakes, and I got my cat food. And the clerk says to me, she says, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, sure. Are you single? I said, yeah, how did you know? Was it the cupcakes or the cat food? (laughs) So the cat food, I was being really skillful because I was going to feed the cats, Hostess cupcakes, maybe not so much. Because I didn't give any of them away. I ate them all. I had a wonderful time eating them. And if I had been practicing generosity, I would have given at least half away and just eaten the other half. So it doesn't have to be big things. It could just be little dumb things like hostess cupcakes. And, and that's greed rather than generosity. You go, Okay. So the practicing is really uh, important, and it's something we can do every day in any situation. So the Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, you can just Google the Eightfold Path, you don't even have to write it in. It's there. So what Buddhists have done is we've taken these eight path factors, and we put them into three categories. So that's how our practice is set up. The three categories are sila, samadhi, and panya. They are personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. Okay, so in the first category of sila, personal discipline, what we find there is that when you become an official Buddhist, you take five precepts. You take five precepts that you're going to hold for the rest of your life. So, what's the first precept? I will practice not to take life. That's the first precept. And notice how they got the word practice in there? It's not, I will not take life. It's, I will practice not to take life. Because it's really difficult not to kill. I don't know if you've experienced that. But where I live, we have mosquitoes. Those little suckers. You know, and they just, like, they get your wrists and they get your ankles, you can't even see them, and then you scratch them for two hours afterwards, and you go, man, I should have killed that little guy, you know, instead of wearing long sleeves or long pants, you know, I should have killed him, because if I would have killed the mosquito, it would have taken care of the problem, but then, as a Buddhist, I took the precept, I will practice not to kill, So i got to figure out a way, i got to figure out a workaround not to kill the mosquito, but not to be bitten by the mosquito. And sometimes it just takes a lot of time and energy to figure the workaround. So killing is really an easy way to solve a problem. Now how many wars are going on right now? It would blow your mind if you could really figure out, there's a website that will tell you, How many wars are happening just today? And why are they at war? Because there's a problem. And what's the easiest way to solve the problem? Let's just kill the enemy, you know. And then we won't have the problem anymore. But you know what the problem is with that? You can't kill them all. There's always one or two that survive. And then they make a really big problem. So you got to try to kill them. And then there's others to take their place. So we've been killing people ever since we've had people. And we haven't solved the biggest problem of all, how to live together in harmony. Not even in love, just in harmony. We haven't figured that out yet. With all the religions in the world, with all the peacemakers in the world, We're still trying to work that out. So the Buddha says, okay, I can't prevent war, but I can work on myself. If I can't change the world, I can change me. If I practice this first precept, I will not take life. I will practice not to take life. Number two, I will practice not to take what is not given. Now that's different than stealing. That means if you're in Denny's, you just ordered a cheeseburger with fries, and there's a bottle of ketchup on the table. And as the waitress goes by, you ask her, is it okay to use the ketchup? Because she didn't offer it to you. It's not your ketchup. It's on Denny's table. And you know what she says? That's what it's there for. You go, I know. But I had to ask anyway. And listen, I'm I'm practicing to be a Buddhist, and we gotta ask to use stuff. I'm sorry. And then she just gives you that dirty look. You know how some people, when they don't understand you, they give you a dirty look and they walk away. But now you have permission to use the ketchup. So you can use it. So it's different than stealing. It needs to be offered. And if it's not offered, you can't use it. Okay, number three, welcome to L.A. I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. Oh, man, are you kidding me? Isn't everything okay in L.A.? Well, not according to Buddhism. According to Buddhism, there's a couple things we shouldn't do. And why shouldn't we do them? It's not necessarily because they're wrong. It's because they cause more suffering rather than less suffering. So that's our reference point. You see that? Suffering, more, less. So if it causes more suffering, we don't want to do it. Okay, so what are the three things as a Buddhist we need to avoid if we want to have sex? Number one, don't have sex with people who are married. You know, and it makes perfect sense. Now, I have never been married, but when I look at married people, I'm going, are you kidding me? They've chosen to stay together for the rest of their life and have children and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a house and cars and college tuition just so they can raise the kids. And what do they do with the kids once they're raised? They kick them out into the world. They're having kids for the world, not for themselves. And then their kids have kids. And then they get married. And I'm going, wow, what a burden to be married, because it takes up so much time. (laughs) You know? If you're single, like I am, you know, you just do your work. Feed the cats, watch Thursday night football, and life is pretty good. But when you're married, you always have kids that are going to cause problems. Now, on TV last night, they had, they had an interview with Diane Sawyer. And it was about a, a famous actor's son who got involved with drugs and went to jail for seven years. And now he's in like his 40s. And he comes out of jail, and he's just written a book. And, and Michael Douglas was the father. And this is Cameron Douglas was the son. And Michael Douglas said, you know, as a father, at some point we don't know what to do. We tried as much as we could, and nothing seemed to work. And I didn't want to bring down the rest of the family just because of him. So he ended up in prison, and now he's out, and, and, and he seems to have learned a lot. But just because you have a good family and enough money and a nice house and a good education doesn't mean your life's going to be good because you have to work on it. Every day you've got to get up and practice working on your life, according to Buddhism. And so one of the things, sexual misconduct, don't want to have sex with people who are married, don't want to have sex with people who are engaged, We don't want them to second-guess and say, should I really be doing this? Is this the right thing to do? Will I really be happier if I'm married than not married? We don't want them to start thinking like that. So stay away from people who are engaged. Stay away from people who are married. And third, most important, don't have sex with people against their will. If they don't want to have sex, don't have sex with them. You know, and you would think that would be easy, but all you got to do is watch TMZ, and you realize that everybody's having sex with everybody else, married or not, and you're just going, man, no wonder the world is suffering so much. You know? No wonder we have 7 billion children, humans walking the earth. 7 billion! So when it comes to sex, this is really an important aspect of your practice, because it's a very powerful desire that never goes away. I've seen people who are 70 years old, and you know what they get for their birthday? Viagra. Come on. Give the guy a break. (laughs) So we look at it a little differently as a Buddhist. You know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's what you're supposed to do. It's why the planet is populated. But now you come to the Buddhist monks and nuns, and they don't get to have sex at all. You know That's one of our precepts that we take, not to have sex. So I was very curious about that, because I always enjoyed sex, and now that I can't have sex, I'm thinking, why would the Buddha say not to have sex? And he said there are two really good reasons. He said, he said the first reason is it costs a lot of money. You're going to have to have a job. You're going to have to have a place to take your woman or your man. You're going to have to eventually have kids, and then the car payments and the mortgages, and it just costs a lot of money. And you're a monk. You live in an economy of generosity. People give you stuff to keep you single. But you don't get much stuff at all. You know, It's just now and then you get a couple bucks here and a couple bucks there, and then they give you some food, and somebody gave me a car. I get to drive a car. I'm thinking, wow, I got a free car. But you know what? There is no such thing as a free car. I got insurance. I got maintenance. I got to buy new tires. It's not free. Nothing is free. So we want to live as simply as possible, spend as little money as we can to have a life that is of service to others. But now, the second part of this is the most important part of all. The Buddha said, He said, If you go into a relationship, if you get married, you will be in love. You will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. You will be happy. But there is one thing you will never be, and that is free. I'm sorry. Relationship does not make you free. It puts you into the prison of relationship which is nice. You can decorate it any way you want. A little picture on the wall, you know. But it's just the gate never opens. You're always in that prison of relationship. So when you're a monastic, a monk or a nun, man, you get to be free. But the question is free from what? Free from suffering. Because every relationship is going to have extra suffering. Two people trying to live together and see the world in the same way. Come on. What are the chances? I just posted something on my Facebook page. And if you want to follow me on Facebook, kusla.info has a link to my Facebook page. And this was really cool, the thing that I posted. It was about Catholics, too. There was this woman back in the 1960s who was an actress. She was beautiful. Her first on-screen kiss was with Elvis Presley. And everybody said, how was it? How was it? She made 10 movies. In one of the movies, she was nominated for an Academy Award. And like at the age of 27, you know what she did? She became a nun. She became a nun. She's 83, just had her 83rd birthday. It's on my Facebook page. It was a wonderful interview a couple years ago. And the guy said... How could you become a nun? You had everything. You were famous. You got to kiss Elvis. You made movies. You were engaged to be married. She was. She was engaged to be married. Her, her fiancé, his mind was blown. But he stayed in touch with her the rest of his life. Call her once a month, see how things were doing. So they asked her, how, why did you become a nun? How could you do that? She said, well, you know what? I fell in love. And when you fall in love, your whole world changes. She fell in love with God. She had a relationship with God that was as fulfilling even more so than with Elvis and all her movie people. And she is happy, and she's a Benedictine nun, and she's an abbess, and she runs... The Abbey, And it's just a fantastic way to look at what can happen to you when you fall in love. You know, Kusla, our, um, years ago, probably about three, four years ago, my seniors wrote her. We, hmm. we actually wrote her because we watched her uh, video, her DVD, into the... I don't know, I forget what the name of it was, but, um, but yeah, it's a remarkable story. We didn't hear back from her, but... <laughs> Oh, well, she was busy. She's, a busy she's running an abbey. She's running an abbey in her 80s. In and her 80s, yeah. It's a beautiful love story. It is a beautiful love story. Yeah. And when you look in her eyes in 1965, she's a picture on my Facebook page of her and Elvis side by side, and then you look at a picture of her now in her 80s, yeah. her eyes sparkle now. Her eyes were sort of dead yeah. when she was making those movies, but when she found her calling, her eyes opened and sparkled. So you never know what's going to happen in your life. I'm not saying any of you will get ordained as a nun. But when you do, you'll realize there's a chance to be free or a chance to have a relationship with an amazing, I don't know, I can't call it a person. You have an amazing relationship. Okay, number four, precept. I will practice to speak skillfully. How much time do we have, Bernadette? We got plenty of time? Oh good. Okay. Less an hour. Okay, that's perfect. That's perfect. So, not to speak unskillfully is the fifth precept that we want to hold. Okay. So, what is unskillful speech? Unskillful pe- speech is false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip and idle chatter those four kinds of speech are unskillful why because they increase suffering they don't decrease suffering so and, and speech is a tough one because it happens so quickly mm-hmm. you know somebody says something to you and you respond and you go oh man why did i say that and now you try to apologize and once it gets into the world it never goes away and now with cell phones and audio recorders you know your speech is there forever posted on the internet Look what this guy said. Look what this girl said. Okay, fifth precept. We finally got to the end. The fifth precept, the hardest one of all to hold. Hardest one. The fifth precept is, I will practice not to consume intoxicants. I will not get high. Man, didn't they just make marijuana legal? (laughs) And now I'm taking this precept not to get high. What gets wrong with getting high? People have been getting high forever, you know, and the problem with getting high, according to Buddhism, is this, getting high steals your wisdom, you end up doing dumb things and even suffer more, not less. So it's all about the mind, getting high just messes up your mind, and I know people think it's cool to get high, but again, remember how I started this talk? This is the biggest hallucination you're ever going to have right now in this room. You don't need to get high. You just need to investigate why you're seeing and hearing what you're seeing and hearing. It will blow your mind. How cool is that? And it's free and you can't get busted. You're just going to be sitting on a cushion meditating, going, look at this mind of mine. Look what it creates. Look at the stories. Wow, what a trip as they used to say back in the old days. Okay, so five precepts. I will practice not to take life. I will practice not to take what is not given. I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will practice not to speak unskillfully. I will practice not to get high. Practice, practice, practice. That's how the Buddhist path starts. Now the next part is cultivation of mind. We call that meditation. According to a very famous meditation manual written in the 5th century, there were 44 different kinds of meditation that a Buddhist can do. Forty kinds of meditation make you tranquil and peaceful and happy, and four kinds of Buddhist meditation gives you insight into the nature of reality. And it said that at the time of the Buddha in India, everybody was practicing tranquility meditation, and they were blissing out and being happy. And the Buddha rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to achieve nirvana. Now we have two, well actually we have three kinds of meditation, oh pardon me, we have three kinds of Buddhist schools in the world. The first school of Buddhism is called the Theravada, doctrine of the elders. These are the guys that wear the saffron robes with one bare shoulder. You see them in Sri Lanka and Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. Okay, that's the early Buddhism. These guys are the Orthodox Buddhists. These guys are the Catholics of Buddhism. Okay. Then we had a giant reform movement and Mahayana Buddhism started around the first century. Mahayana Buddhism is the great vehicle Buddhism. And the emphasis changed. The goal became different in Mahayana Buddhism than it was in Theravada Buddhism. So in Theravada Buddhism, the goal was to achieve nirvana and suffering. But in Mahayana Buddhism, the goal was to achieve enlightenment and be of service to all the people who are suffering. Because remember what I said, when you achieve nirvana, you end your karma and you end all future rebirths. And in the Mahayana tradition, there's an bodhisattva ideal. To become a bodhisattva, you take a vow to save all sentient beings. Now, how long is it going to take to save all sentient beings? Forever. It's going to take forever. So then you have to keep coming back as a human being and find Mahayana Buddhism and take the vows again and be of service to all the sentient beings that are suffering. And who's suffering? Everybody is suffering. So you've got plenty of work to do. So let me give you the definition of enlightenment according to me. Enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. The direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Now, what does that do to you when you have that direct experience of the interconnectedness? It means that none of us exist independently. None of us exist alone and apart from everything else. We're always interconnected. We're always interdependent. If one person is suffering, there's a part of us that's suffering. If one person is hungry, there's a part of us that's hungry. And you can't deny that any longer. So your whole life changes into the direction of being of service. Being of service. Helping others suffer less. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about being a volunteer. I never did, but then I got a phone call. I had an article in the newspaper, L.A. Times, talking about going to Cal Poly Pomona and speaking to the Buddhist club. And there was this Catholic deacon in Lancaster, California. Please. Come on in. In Lancaster, California, at a prison for men, 4,300 men behind bars, California State Prison for Men, Lancaster, called me up and said, hey, I saw that article in the newspaper, it's really good. Have you ever thought about coming up to a prison and talking to the Buddhist prisoners? And you know what I said? Are there Buddhist prisoners? Don't they all hold the five precepts? Aren't they all trying to be better people? Why do we have prisoners? We do have prisoners because you're always going to be human first and Buddhist second until you achieve nirvana. So I said, okay, sure. I'll, I'll come up and talk. You know, it would be interesting to see what prison's like, what the prisoners are like. And the best part is I get to leave. You know, So I, w- I went up there, and I had a motorcycle at the time. Didn't have a car. And I rode up to Lancaster, and it is like going into hell. The wind is always blowing. It's hotter in the summer, colder in the winter. And you get up there, and you can't put your stuff any place but on your motorcycle. They won't let you bring it into the prison. And then they have to fingerprint you, and they have to take, see your driver's license, and they had to do background checks. But I finally got in, and I finally met the guys. And you know what? They all seem like really nice guys because whatever they did, they weren't doing it now. So it's taught me a really important lesson that, that a couple minutes of your life can change your whole life. You can never go back. So you always need to be careful in what you say, think, and do because there are consequences. So these guys, were there. I was talking to this one guy, he seemed like a really nice guy too. And we're talking about, you know, the old music of the 60s and Led Zeppelin and da da da, And he just sort of mentioned that, you know, the reason he was in there is because he killed his whole family. They're on vacation. They had a little tent, you know, and he decided to kill everybody. So he's in there. And I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe it's good that we have prisons because not everybody needs to be out killing their family. But there you go. And so I'm talking to him, and he seemed like the nicest guy. And then you hear about the story, and you go, damn. You know? So I decided to give a Dharma talk. Oh, they didn't know anything about Buddhism. They, were, they had been born, in some cases, in Buddhist countries. But when they went to the temple, they would just offer incense to the Buddha. That was it. They didn't, they didn't know about chanting, they didn't know about the Buddha and his talks and, and Sila, Samadhi and Panya, and you know I'm going, "Wow, okay, we're going to start at, at one. We're going to start this about suffering. That's what the Buddha started. I'll suffer. Anybody here suffering?" I said. "Yeah, everybody's suffering. Okay, I got some stuff to tell you. You can end your suffering." Then we did meditation, and they brought blankets from their cells, and they sort of rolled them up, put them on the floor, and we all sat down to meditate. And not one of the prisoners closed their eyes. And I asked one, I said, why don't you close your eyes? Well, you can't trust the guy next to you. Okay, I got you. Then they said, you know, can you bring us some incense? You know, this place just smells terrible. I said, yeah, I think I can get some incense. So I went around, I got like 10,000 sticks of incense. In one month, it was all gone. I said, how can 12 guys burn 10,000 sticks of incense? I said, well, we didn't burn it. We sold it. Yeah. Well, okay. So now I'm the supplier, you know. <laughs> so I'm going, wow, this is really a trip, you know. I'm glad I'm going up there. I'm glad I'm seeing the way it is. But, you know, I, to do that the rest of my life, that'd be tough. So after a year, I got another invitation to go to Central Juvenile Hall, downtown Los Angeles, Westlake Division. Speaks to the young people about Buddhism, you know. And I said, okay, are there any Buddhists here? They said, well, we haven't found any yet, you know, but but I think they like to hear about suffering and the end of suffering. So I did my first talk in the high-risk offenders section. These are guys that, like, kill people and rape people and carjack people, and most of them are going to go to prison after their time at Central Juvenile Hall. So I'm there, you know, and I wasn't quite sure, and then I walked into the room, and I said, yeah, this is cool. We all got the same haircut, man. You know? So we had a lot in common right at the beginning. Anybody suffering? All the hands went up. Well, okay, let me tell you about suffering. You know? And then we'd have retreats. We'd have a day-long retreat. And you, and you wonder, oh, how do you get these guys to meditate for a whole day in the Catholic chapel? You know? And the, our secret was we'd buy pizza. And they'd just all show up. You know? Have pizza and meditation. So then I was invited to go to UCLA and start a Buddhist club on campus and become part of the spiritual care committee. And I would give talks to the chaplains at the medical center on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. So it was really, this was like going to to a university for advanced degrees. All the kind of volunteer work I did, all the stuff I learned and had to learn in order to be a good volunteer and maybe reduce suffering, And so somebody said, after 20 years of being a volunteer and of service to community, how many people have you saved? And I said, not one. But it wasn't my job to save anybody. My job was just to show up. So I showed up for 20 years and did what I did, and then I left. And did I ever change anybody's life? I don't know. Nobody ever told me. Thank you for changing my life. Nobody ever said that. But I continue to do it because it's what you do if you're a Buddhist. In the Mahayana tradition, you are, have a life of service to others to help them suffer less. Okay. So, how does meditation work? You know? If you've ever meditated, uh, some of, one of the easiest ways to do it is watching the breath. Going on and coming in. You can feel the sensation of breath going on and coming in, going on and coming in. Now, what I like about breath meditation is you're always breathing. Morning, noon, night, you're always breathing. And if you're not breathing, you don't need to meditate. So here we are sitting on the ground, watching our breath, going on and coming in, going And we just keep focusing on the breath, focus on the breath. Intense focus on the breath. And then we start to count. We start to count inhalation, exhalation. One, two, three, four, up to ten, down to one, up to ten, down to one. One, two, three, four. And our mind is getting more and more focused on the sensation of breath. It's right there now. Okay. So what happens next? We let go of the counting and simply rest on the sensation of breath. Because what is counting? Counting is a concept. And what is a concept? Concept is thinking. And we want to anesthetize our thinking. We want to slow down our thinking. We want to see what's between the thoughts. In that space between each thought, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this way, but imagine a big train with a bunch of boxcars, and each boxcar has a door that's open, and inside that boxcar is a thought. And you see the thought, and then the boxcar goes to the next. And in between boxcars, they are coupled, and in that space between the boxcars, there's no thought. So if you meditate on your breath and follow it really hard, you start to see the space in between each thought. And what does that do to you? It means that you are not the thought. Remember that guy a long time ago said, I think, therefore I am? No, no, no. I think, therefore I think. You know, that's not us either. But you start to see that little space and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are moments when nothing's going on. And at that moment you lose your past and you lose your future. And you come to the present moment experience of your life the sensation of your life. How does your life feel? What does it feel like to be part of your life right now in this very moment? You know what one of the characteristics turns out to be? Peace. You find a great peace. Not to have a past or a future just for a few moments is really wonderful. Because most of the time, we're anticipating the future as being better than what's happening right now. Or we are regretting the past and something we did. And that has nothing to do with right now. Right now is the most important part of your life. It's the only place in your life that you can change. You can't change in the past. You can't change in the future. You can only change right now. And what you do now starts to create a different future. So if you're kind and generous and wise in the right now moment, your future will be so much better. So we sit and we meditate, we focus so hard, so hard. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff drops away and we come to the present moment of our life and we find peace and we find serenity. And then the gong rings and meditation is over and you get in your car and you go on the four hundred five. And somebody cuts you off, and you curse at them and wish them long life in hell. And then you think, "Well, wait a minute, I was just in this cool place of peace and serenity. What happened? You know what happened? Life happened. Life is not meant to be peaceful and serene. We bring that to the table. We bring that ourselves. OK, now we go into it. Insight meditation, four kinds of inside meditation. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects. So let's talk about mindfulness of sensations. We have three sensations. As a Buddhist, we have three sensations. We have good, bad, and neutral. Okay. So, and most of the time, neutral doesn't catch our attention. So now we're going to sit there... And we're going to try to find sensations in mind and body. And we start at the top of the head and go to the tip of the toes and sort of scan up and down, up and down, looking for a sensation. And then when we find a sensation, we note it. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Okay, and we say pleasant, then we go to the next one. And then the next one's unpleasant, and then we go to the next one, and the next one is unpleasant, So pretty soon after a half hour of looking for all the sensations, noting all the ones you became aware of, then you go into a deep state of reflection on the sensations and you see if you can find the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will liberate you from suffering. Okay, what is the first aspect of Buddhist wisdom? Everything changes. Well, we know that, you know? Everything changes. That's the first aspect of Buddhist wisdom. So you looked at all these sensations and you say, did any of these sensations stay permanent? And you have to say no. Sometimes they got worse. Sometimes they got better. Sometimes they seem to go away. But none of them seem permanent. And You go, okay. So now I'm going to look in the world. Is there anything in the world permanent and unchanging? Anything. And you go, you know what? I always thought the mountains were permanent and unchanging, but I realized after a couple million years, they just turn to sand. And trees can last three or four hundred years, sometimes longer. Humans can last 60 or 70 years, sometimes shorter. And everything is always changing all the time. So there's no place to stand. There's nothing to hold on to. You just have to be in the flow, the motion of the universe, Ever-changing, always different, every day. Which is sort of cool, really. Because you know what? Th- today will never happen again. This is it. This is the very first time. And I know you've walked through that door before. And you've know seen each other's faces before. But this is really the first time you've ever been here. And the first time you've ever seen everybody else. Because we're all different. The situation is different. You all learn stuff. Some got better sleep, something got worse sleep. But here you are for the first time. So every moment in your life is the first time you've ever experienced the world in that way. And that's exciting because it's never boring. It's never the same. It's always new and exciting and challenging. You can't just sleepwalk through life because it doesn't work. Because everything you think is going to happen doesn't. And everything you hope is not going to happen does. And you have to be there to figure out what to do next. Okay, so the first thing you've learned in watching sensations is that everything changes. The next thing you learn is everything is ultimately unsatisfactory and filled with suffering. And why is that? Because everything changes. So you go to Disneyland. You spend your $55 for one day at Disneyland thinking this is they're going to be so wonderful. Higher than that, $110? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. $150 Disneyland for the whole day. And what do they do? They close. They close. The happiest place on earth closes. So even though you're happy while you're there, you know eventually because of impermanence and having to close, you'll be unhappy because you'll have to go home. Okay. Impermanence, suffering, and now the biggest one of all, not self. You are not who you think you are. There is nothing in you that doesn't change. There is nothing in you that is independent. You are a process. You are not an event, according to Buddhism. Okay. So how does it feel to be a process? Well, I can't hold on to anything. I can't push anything away. Just when I think I know who I am, everything changes and I'm somebody else. Wow. And when I die, it's not even the same person that lives as the same person that dies and will be reborn. It's a brand new person. So why should I do anything for the next guy who's going to take my place? Because it's not me. Pretty good question. Because you're on a relay team. It's a team effort. You're handing the baton off to the next you. And the next you hands the baton off to the next you. And pretty soon the baton goes to the next lifetime to the next you. But it's the team that wins in a relay race. It's not the individuals that win. And our life is a team effort. Our life requires us to be part of the team of us. Me, mine, and I, that's my team. And I have the baton, and I keep handing it off to the next guy, and I was 10 years old, and I was 20 years old, and I was 30 years old, and I was 40 years old, and all the baton giving, you know, I'm going, whoa, man. And some decades I got better, and some decades I got worse. But I was still running in my lane. It was still the race. And I just had the baton to hand off to the next guy. And pretty soon I hand off the baton to the guy who's going to die. And I say, okay, man, you have a good death. We're all counting on you. Wow, okay. Important to have a good death in Buddhism. And how do you have a good death in Buddhism? What's a good death in Buddhism? It's not grace. God doesn't help us die. We don't even have a really permanent place to go to other than nirvana. We have heavens and we have hells, but they're all temporary. So you get to heaven for a couple hundred thousand lifetimes and you go, man, this is just perfect. I never want to leave. And then you got to leave. Be reborn in one of the other realms. And finally, after enough practice and enough lifetimes, you achieve nirvana, you never have to be reborn again. But how does a good Buddhist die? A good Buddhist dies because the last thought of this lifetime is the first thought of the next lifetime. So our job, when all is said and done, after all the years we've lived, after all the internal confusion we've had, is to have one good last thought. Are you kidding me? One good last thought? That means you've got to turn off the TV. You're not going to watch the news and have a good last thought, that's for sure. Even all the dramas, you know, and comedies, can't watch those either. So how do you have a good last thought? You know one of the ways to have a good last thought? Is to write a death journal. Now, the death journal is just a bunch of pages in a book. And what you do on each page is you write one good thing you did today. And each of us will do at least one good thing today. So you would take your journal and you write the one good thing you did today. And then the next day you'd write the one good thing you did that day. And then the next day the one good thing. Okay, now you're dying and you have your friend or your, your partner or your wife or your husband or somebody who knows the death journal and knows you. And they sit next to you on your bed and they start reading one good thing you did today, one good thing you did today that'll be the last thought you're going to have and you'll have a good rebirth and the team continues and the relay race is on okay, how cool is that but that means you're accountable you're accountable for your life you're accountable for your death and none of us know when we're going to die and none of us know how long we're going to live could happen any day that's why daily practice is so important. Today could be the day. Now, I am 70 years old, and I have never woken out of sleep and felt today's the day I'm going to die. Never. Today's the day I got stuff to do. I can't die today. But, you know, the older you get, the more realistic it is that you'll just drop over dead, surprise everybody at the restaurant. You know, mm-hmm. there you are, dead. man. Hope he had a good last thought. You know Yes, he did. He was eating dessert. He had a good last thought. So it's interesting when we think about the 21st century in Buddhism, and what is Buddhism going to do and help people in the 21st century? You know how it's going to help them? With good mental health. You know how many crazy people are in the world right now? Man. They're everywhere. They're homeless. They're living in hospitals and prisons. If you practice Buddhism, your mental health will increase dramatically. Because you'll have an anchor into the reality of your life that wasn't there before. You'll see things in a different way. You'll understand things in a different way. You'll speak about things in a different way, which will lead you to experience the world in a positive, skillful way. And remember when I said you can't change the world, but you can change the way you experience the world? Buddhism helps us change the way we experience the world. And the 21st century needs good mental health because right now everybody is insane. It seems that way anyway. Okay, I'm going to stop there and open it up for questions.